ప్రేమ స్వరూపులైన విద్యార్థులారా విద్యా బోధకులారా New Year, New Me. I'm sure I'm not the first among us to think or say that. The New Year always fills us with renewed enthusiasm to make lofty resolutions as we say to ourselves with much hope, this year I'm going to intensify my spiritual practice. I'm going to wake up early and practice an hour of silence sitting. I will read a discourse a day. We set these noble goals, but if we're brutally honest with ourselves, we already know at the outset the true probability of these spiritual goals lasting a whole 365 days. So why is it that these well-intentioned resolutions seem to just fizzle away? In Swami's 1968 birthday discourse, he reveals the folly of our ways in no uncertain terms. So long as one is dominated by sense pleasures, it cannot be said that his spiritual life has begun. Now, many clamor for the experience of spiritual bliss, but few earn it because they find themselves too weak to reject the clamor of the senses. If we've been thinking that sense control is too advanced or for another time, then Swami's words here really hammer the point home, don't they? I mean, how can we set ourselves these virtuous goals without first having got the basics right with sense control? Swami then proceeds with an apt analogy. Without the control of the senses, spiritual practice is ineffective. It is like keeping water in a leaky pot when the senses are given full sway. So, if we want all our other spiritual practices to bear fruit, then we need to first establish the foundation of sense control. It's almost a prerequisite. With that perspective, let's step into discourse 5, which has been titled by the editors Road to Divinity. In this discourse, our dearest Swami quite literally paves the way to divinity for us. He reveals to us how we can properly set those foundations and get the basics right with sense control, starting with special focus on one sense organ in particular, the tongue. the sensory perceptions namely hearing touching seeing tasting and smelling are more powerful than the sense organs if the tongue is conquered it virtually amounts to mastering all the senses the tongue has two important functions eating and talking whosoever is able to conquer these two faculties of the tongue can merge himself in the divine self wow swami 10 for the price of one I mean, who doesn't love a bargain, right? Especially if it has as its result merger in the divine self. Seem too good to be true? Well, before we dismiss the statement altogether as totally impossible, let's look at the logic behind this. Swami illustrates the gravity of what mastering the tongue can mean with some helpful and vivid analogies. 
With the help of a small rudder, we can save a big boat from a fierce cyclone. With a small spark, we can kindle a bonfire. The power of speech is like a spark of fire. Swami once again draws upon our equine friends to illustrate how we can practically control our tongue. He notes the way in which a horse bridle, a small piece of iron, can in itself control the horse's mouth, and in so doing, the horse itself. So Smarmy is revealing to us here that it really only takes something as minuscule as a rudder to save us from an unforgiving storm, something as innocuous as a piece of iron to bring an unruly horse under control, something as unsuspecting as our tongues to wield control over all our senses. Swami then makes the bold proclamation, once you can control your speech, you can control the world itself. Wow! Doesn't this just add another dimension to the knowledge that the tongue is the strongest muscle in our body? Let's break things down and explore a little further the two functions of the tongue that Swami has pointed out here. We've looked at the first function, eating, in quite a bit of detail over the last season. Swami spoke about it in terms of input regulation and also as part of the much larger Sealing on Desires program, not wasting food by eating what we need rather than what we desire. Let's now get a sense of that second function of our apparent frenemy, speaking. Armed with the knowledge of the dual function of the senses that we explored in the previous discourse, that is, the internal and external functions, we can surmise that controlling the tongue is not merely a cessation of the spoken word. Let me give you a silent demonstration of why. Don't worry, I'm still here. Are you? Or perhaps the more pressing question is, was your mind here that whole time too? Or was that mad monkey off having a field day? <coughs> Swami says, when the tongue stops talking, the mind starts chatting. So then, simply holding our tongues and not vocalising our thoughts doesn't and can't in itself mean we've achieved control over our tongue, right? Remember, Swami gave us that little teaser at the start of the discourse about how the sensory perceptions are far more powerful than the sense organs. In so doing, he prompts us to pause and ask ourselves, what is true silence? True silence is actually a gradual and sequential process. Swami presents the gobsmacking hierarchy. When the tongue stops talking, the mind starts chatting. To control the mind prattling, the intellect has to be awakened. Then, one should gently persuade the intellect to turn gradually toward the Atma. True spiritual practice consists in the technique of merging the faculty of speech in the mind, mind in the intellect, and finally, intellect in the Atma. Let me repeat the sequence. Merging the faculty of speech in the mind mind in the intellect, and finally, intellect in the atma. So, we try to practice silence, but as soon as the words stop, the mind decides, great, now I get free reign to monkey around without interruption, and it proceeds to lead our weary selves on a merry roller coaster of creating, remembering, and agitating. Swami's clear instructions are that at this point, the buddhi, or intellect, has to be awakened to control the mind's prattling. 
Intellect here is not used in the way it is in common parlance when we say someone is an intellectual or very knowledgeable. Instead, intellect here is the capacity to recognize the difference between the temporary and eternal, unreal and real. We'll explore it in more detail in the coming discourses, but suffice it to say that the buddhi, or intellect, is akin to a yes-no indicator of our every impulse. Swami explains the crucial point here that the intellect needs to be gently persuaded to turn to the Atma. What does it mean to turn to the Atma? In the Gita Vahini, Swami says, this is to fix your attention on the unchanging basis, not on the fluctuating manifestations. We've been so caught up in the constantly changing images that we've become entirely subsumed by the movie, and we've almost completely lost sight of the fixed screen upon which those moving images are being projected. So, at the point when the faculty of speech is merged in the mind, the mind in the intellect, and finally the intellect in the Atma, what's left? Simply the Atma, or God if you prefer. It's like a river that merges in the ocean. The river loses its name and distinctive features of being a separate river, and without boundaries, practically dissolves into the ocean, or in the case of the Atma, that supreme consciousness. Forgetting this sacred and royal road available to man, it is sad that he chooses to indulge in sensual pleasures which ultimately drown him in deep sorrow. No one tries to find out what the ultimate source of animation of the insentient senses is, nor does one seek to know who the real enjoyer is of all the pleasures derived through the senses. Such a noble path is available to us, yet we give in to the temptation of worldly whims and fancies. Swami then asks the pertinent question. No one is really making any effort to understand who is enjoying these sensual pleasures. One who enjoys the food, one who drinks the beauty. Who is enjoying all this? Is it the sense organs, the body, or is it something else? We know that the body is inert, it's simply a garment we wear. We also know that the senses are insentient. So the real experiencer in all these cases, the one who enjoys the food, who takes it in beauty, the true foundation and seed of all the worldly manifestations, projections and sensual pleasures, can be none other than the Atma. Swami then says something that completely unravels everything. Atma is the basis for the manifested world and the original source of motivation for the internal world. Only when we recognize the cardinal role of the Atma as the root cause of everything will the deceptive and transient sense organs cease to have dominance over us. Only when we recognize, that is, only when we place our attention on it. This is the key, isn't it? If the Atma or God is the real enjoyer, if the Atma is what animates the inanimate senses, then who am I? Does an individual exist at all? Or does God alone exist? Having firmly planted the seed of inquiry within us, Swami is starting to give us a taste of what true sense control can gift us. Unfortunately, there's no free lunch though, so we'll have to chew on this till the truth sprouts within. Next episode, we're poised for encounters of the fifth kind. We've made contact, 
But what is it that will enable us to hold our own against the barrage of stimuli that are constantly being thrown at us? We'll potato that to rest next time. Until then, stay rawesome.